In August 1969, a hurricane named Camille formed in the Caribbean Sea and intensified in the Gulf of Mexico. Many of the memories shared about this storm recollect a small but very powerful hurricane striking southeast Louisiana, coastal Mississippi, and Alabama on the night of August 17th. Camille was the second most powerful hurricane to strike the U.S. at landfall, packing sustained winds in excess of 170 miles an hour and a 24.6-foot storm surge that killed 143 people along the Gulf Coast. Camille was one of only four hurricanes to make landfall in the U.S. with Category 5 winds. Many people are surprised to hear that there's a second story of Hurricane Camille that begins after the devastation along the Gulf Coast. As the storm tracked north, it encountered a stalled-out cold front and blocking high-pressure system over the Appalachians that created the perfect setup for exceptionally heavy rain, especially near the Blue Ridge Mountains of southwest Virginia. An area in these mountains, particularly in Nelson County, Virginia, observed somewhere between 27 and 31 inches of rain, most of which fell in three to five hours, according to the National Weather Service. Such such exceptionally heavy rains induced flash flooding along streams and rivers, as well as thousands of debris flows like landslides and mudslides where sides of mountains slid into valleys below. The second catastrophe from Hurricane Camille killed 114 people and left 37 missing and buried or swept away more than 900 buildings, 100 bridges, as well as many miles of roads. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal, host of the GeoTrek podcast. Happy New Year. I can't believe it. We've made it to 2024, and I truly hope that you and your family had a very happy holiday season. On this first podcast of 2024, we travel back in time to the year 1969 to interview survivors of Hurricane Camille's second catastrophe, the extraordinary floods and debris flows in Nelson County, Virginia, on the night of August 19th, 1969. I traveled to Nelson County in November 2023 to record these interviews in person. This podcast includes interviews from three storm survivors who provide in-depth insights and personal accounts of the local impact of Hurricane Camille. If you're new to the podcast, GeoTrek explores the world to cover stories related to extreme weather and natural disasters not covered by the mainstream media. We take an in-depth look at the physical processes that produce these events, their impacts on society, and what we can do to get out ahead of such disasters in the future to reduce their impacts. The cost of this podcast is free. However, we do ask that you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us mark progress, which makes it easier for us to continue growing in the future. I recorded these interviews at the Oakland Museum of the Nelson County Historical Society in Arrington, Virginia. This museum contains a very rich collection of local history, including a Camille Resource Center to document the flood and landslides in 1969. The first interview is with Warren Rains. In 1969, Warren was a 14-year-old boy living in Massey's Mill, Virginia. On the night of August 19th, his mother and father, along with five of their children and two children from a neighbor's family, tried to escape Camille's floodwaters in the middle of the night. Warren recounts the tragic story of how Camille's floodwater overtook them with catastrophic impacts. We're here in the Oakland Museum in uh, Nelson County, Virginia. Warren, I really appreciate you taking time to come to the podcast. Obviously, the storm, um, very tragic for your family and a huge impact on your life. Could you just start by sharing when you think back to that time, maybe walking through that event and and, um, just kind of 
through the night with um, Camille's floods? Well, the night before this all happened, or the night that it did happen, going into the morning hours, uh, we, there was a thunderstorm going on that evening, but we didn't know any different than any other thunderstorm that was going on. And um, anyhow, of course, it was raining, but we didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to it. We went to bed as normally, and anyhow, we got a phone call uh, right about 2 o'clock in the morning, and some lady that lived in the village where we lived uh, told us that Massey's Mill was flooding. And anyway, he said, uh, you know, y'all might consider leaving or getting out or whatever. She said, my car has floated away already. And, of course, she had a Volkswagen, which Volkswagens would float. But uh, anyway, we uh, didn't think think it'd be a whole lot to what she was talking about. But anyway, we looked out and we could see traffic, people going, leaving the little village. And we could see places where maybe the water was puddling up right much. So anyhow, uh, we decided to get up. My father did. And, and my mother was there. It was my mother, father, uh, had two sisters and a brother, uh, and two sisters and two brothers there with me that night. And um, anyway, uh, we decided that we would try to leave, but in the meantime, the neighbor behind us called and asked if his children could come with us because we were going to be leaving. And so uh, it was agreeable that they could come with us. And uh, all of us got in our family station wagon. There was 11 of us in a station wagon. And by that time, the water in the highway had gotten up probably maybe about close to a foot or so in the highway, but the highway was a little bit higher than where we would park the car. And so anyway, we were all ready to leave, and then water killed the engine in the car. So we thought maybe we had enough time to walk down the, the, the road, or you could call it the street or whatever you want to call it, and uh, be able to go up to a neighbor's home that was up off of the, you know, the, the lower area there. Uh, but anyway, we all got out, and we, we couldn't have gone much more than, I don't know, maybe 100 yards or so. And the, and the water just went from just, gosh, uh, uh, just uh, got maybe a foot or so deep to the next thing you know, it was pro- up to probably about five feet deep in just a matter of minutes. It's all like it all came from one place. I don't know whether it was gathering in places and it was all breaking loose at one time on upstream. Warren, was it flowing really fast or was it just kind of oh, coming up? It was swift. You, could, you had to go with, the, go with the flow of the water. And anyway, uh, the, the family, it, it pretty much, so we were all going together. And Anyway, like I said, we'd gotten about 100 yards or so, and then we, we got separated by the strength of the water. And I remember grabbing hold to some old vines or something that were there, and the lightning was so vivid. I mean, the lightning was almost like daylight. It, it, the lightning was so intense. I mean, it, uh, it was just still, thunderstorm was going on, and it just it just raining so hard. I mean, it's uh, almost like we have a bucket of water over your head. But anyway, uh, I, I could see my mother in the distance with, uh, with my two sisters there, and I told them where I was holding on to was giving way. And they said, let go, we'll catch you. 
they had pretty good grip where they were. And anyhow, I let go when I got to them. They were gone. That's the last I saw them. But um, anyhow, um, what I was going to say is, didn't see, any, didn't see anybody else the rest of the night. And finally, I was able to get hold to a big old weeping willow tree. It was so big, it could hardly get your arms around it. And I held on to that. And anyway, the force of the river, or the, the water, should I say, caused that tree to uproot and go down while I was holding to it. And so the roots held enough to where I could actually climb up the trunk of the tree and hang on to a branch. Still, I was still somewhat in the water then, but I had something good to hold on to. Anyway, just all night long, just uh, I had a wristwatch on, and I could watch the time. It was a waterproof watch, and um, just, a, just a long night. And finally about, it must be like between 7 and 7.30 in the morning, uh, it had stopped. And uh, I heard somebody from behind me holler at me, and somebody was in a tree behind me, up, upstream from me, probably about, I don't know, maybe maybe 50 feet uh, from me, something like that. And he called my name, and he said, do you know who I am? I, and I told him, I said, no. He said, it's, it's, it was my brother. <laughs> and he told me, he said, it's, it's, it's me, Carl. And, and anyhow, I told him, I said, okay. I said, you doing all right? And he said, I said, where's everybody else? He said, I don't know. And I looked upstream, and I said, it looked like it was getting ready to come again. I said, we're going to do something about getting out of here because it uh, looks like it's going to come again. But anyway, uh, some people from around the community came in with a, uh, what they would call a john boat, and brought that in, some rope and so forth, and got my brother and I and took us over to a little higher spot, which would be more or less like a, a bank but of the river, but it was actually where somebody's home was. And anyhow, they took us uh, to there, and the water receded so quick. I would say probably by not, maybe by 9, 9.30, most of it had gone back into the riverbed. And uh, it just you looked around the devastation, the homes and so forth that were uh, just had been washed off the foundation. All this was just unbelievable how all this stuff happened. There were dead cattle uh, around uh, it. But that night, uh, that all this stuff was going by. I could see cows going by in the water when the lightning was lightening up. And uh, there were even, you know, like telephone poles, or there were logs, automobiles, and all of this stuff. You, you just had to kind of... And, and, Whole houses, I had whole homes and complete homes float by me. And we just had to watch that all night long as well to make sure you didn't get hit by anything. And so if anything was going to come close enough to you, you could jump back in the water. And it was a few times I thought I was going to have to jump back in the water because of just stuff floating by and uh, hitting us. But um, anyway, that was some of the stuff that went on that particular night. But anyhow... Uh, that that's pretty much so it the my brother and I stayed with these people for just a little bit to rest up and we said we'll have to go find the rest of the family so we we hit out looking and 
we couldn't find anybody uh, as far as our family was concerned, and we could find uh, you know nobody that was really missing that night. So, but um, anyway, uh, we just looked all day long, and uh, and uh, they had some someone that came in and some had provided some food and stuff for different ones that were in there uh, trying to help everybody to recover and so forth. But anyway, later that evening, um, just before dark, a gentleman who was a friend of the family's, he told me, he said, boys, y'all come on and go with me. You can stay with me tonight. Well, anyway, we went that night and and stayed with him. Of course, I didn't think I would sleep, but slept from just exhaustion, maybe being up all night that night and walking all day long and looking and so forth. But I knew that night that if we hadn't seen or heard anything from the rest of the family, that was going to be it. Uh, But anyhow, uh, the next day after that, uh, we had a state trooper, a gentleman named Ed Tinsley. Uh, He asked us, you know, where, you know, uh, if we had any other family close by, and we had some grandparents in Lynchburg, and he said, well, I'm going to see if I can get y'all to there. And so anyway, we rode with him the, where we could go. The roads were all washed out everywhere. I mean, you just had to go way out of your way here and there and so forth. And he got us there, and it just so happened that uh, my grandfather uh, and a great-uncle of mine and my, a sister that I had in Lynchburg were at the Amherst-Nelson County line where he took us to, and we met up with them and went on back into Lynchburg. And then after that, it was just days of coming back and just looking to see, you know, what we could salvage as far as anything, uh, uh, trying to find family and so forth. But um, anyway, a peace of mind, I guess you could say, they found uh, all of our family, uh, it was within the couple of days, or the, pretty much so the next day, they found my father, uh, older sister, and a younger brother. And, uh, and it was a week later, they found my mother. And so we were all able to have a funeral for all of them, was four of them. And then my younger sister, she was still missing. And anyhow, two weeks later, she was found, and she only lacked about two miles of floating, going into the James River. And if if uh, if she had gotten into the James River, uh, we never would have found her. But peace of mind again that everybody was found in, in our family. But um, two of the people that it was a Wood family, they had four of their children went with us. Two of them survived, and the other two they never found to this day. But um, anyhow, that's you know pretty much so how things went for, for the most part. I don't know. Thank you. I really appreciate you sharing this, sure and yeah. I know it's um I, I can't even say the words are just so catastrophic. But I appreciate you taking time, like you had said in this room before. Some people talk about it, and some people don't, and. And uh, people have asked you why you talk about it, and you said that's how people are going to hear about it and maybe learn from it, right? But yeah, you know, I have more trouble talking about it now than I did, you know, some years ago. But um, anyhow, um, it's uh, you know sometimes it, you know it's just it's hard to talk about it uh, still. Yeah, you know, that's it, the the thing of it is, uh, 
the event itself to me is I'm more amazed by it now than I was then as to really, you know, as far as it happening. I mean, as far as, you know, what was there, I'm just really amazed more by it now than I was then. But um, as far as what happened, uh, as far as the weather and so forth was concerned uh, and what it can do, the devastation and all. Yeah, when we get decades beyond it, and there's nothing really like that as far as an inland flood, right? The, the scale of it, I think, just becomes even bigger and bigger. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it, uh, you're exactly right about that. Yeah. Warren and I recorded two short interviews. A few minutes after the first interview, we recorded this second conversation that includes a few more insights and context of this catastrophic event. Uh, above me there in... I didn't recognize him at first, but, but that was because he was in shock, of, uh, really. That, that, and I was shivering. I was cold. And, and, and even though it was in the August, the, it, being in the water all night long and then in the rain, and just, it, it, it just cold and shivering, like I said. And then I did recognize him, and then we talked together uh, about that. But um, anyway... Uh, what I was going to say is, is that getting back, if the the lady that called us that, to warn us about getting out of Massey's Mill, if she hadn't called us, chances are we would have slept past the time period of safely trying to escape. And so we would have stayed in our home. The sad part about it is our home, the upstairs part, was untouched, and and anyhow, if we'd have stayed upstairs of our home, we would have been fine. Our whole family would have been fine. But that's something we didn't know. And like I said, if we'd have, uh, if we'd have stayed in there that night, it would have just been a night of nothing but fear because of the the homes and everything floating by the water as deep as it was. The water in Mass's Mill had gotten up to probably maybe about eight feet deep and it was just so swift you couldn't you couldn't do anything with it and and i'm sure it was deeper than that much deeper than that in other you, places you mentioned it would have been a terrifying night as neighboring houses washed away and things like that and you wouldn't have known if yours was going to hold or, or wash away yeah yeah so anyhow again uh that's something we didn't know and and, and again just it had been a, a long night there just to fear because fearing the house would uh, implode or explode or whatever what you want to call it, and, and then we'd just all be separated then, and that would have been it. But um, anyhow, uh, just, of course, things turned out the way they did. It sounds like given the information, your family just made the best decision they could in the moment and what they thought was going to be the safer decision. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, my father, uh, just like I said, he said, let's head for high ground. And, and I always said after that, I said, yes, he's heading for high ground, but a much higher ground than he expected. Thanks, Warren. I appreciate you taking time to share this story. Yeah. Glad to do that, yeah. Thank you, Warren, for sharing these stories of the Hurricane Camille catastrophe. I've been interviewing natural disaster survivors since the year 2005, and I've never seen more courage on an interview than I saw in this conversation with Warren. 
It's impossible to imagine losing your parents and three siblings in one night. As Warren said, it's difficult for him to talk about this catastrophe, and he was understandably emotional as he recounted the story. The next conversation is with Dick Whitehead, who is very involved with the efforts of Nelson County Historical Society. Dick's father, Bill, was the Nelson County Sheriff in 1969 when the Camille disaster occurred. Dick provides a concise summary of what has been learned from Camille and how people anywhere can prepare for disasters before they strike. What has been learned um, in over time is that um, in these types of disasters, one needs to think about their options, their escape plans ahead of time, and make their decisions early. And that's what the NOAA and the National Weather Service is trying to do these days with their warnings related to flooding and or landslides, as well as tornadoes. They're trying to make sure that those that the people have a, a plan and they think about it ahead of time. And when the warning comes out, they make the decisions early and go for it. Right. To, to kind of get out ahead of this, if possible, like in this case, it seems with the technology available in the late 60s, maybe it just couldn't have been known. But like you're saying, with satellites and the technology today, sometimes you can see this coming. And it sounds like you're saying if we can get out ahead of it, have a plan and, and put that into place ahead of time, that can really help. Correct. And so today we have better um, radar. We have better warning systems and we have better communications, including cell phones and all those things allow people to know about this stuff ahead of time. This particular storm, Camille, happened in the night and um, people were asleep. And, you know, they, they didn't have early warning systems. So that, that stuff is improved. But to couple that, you, the, the people themselves need to, to think about their, their, their escape plans or whatever you want to call them and ahead of time. And be prepared, regardless of which type of national disaster you're having, and make your decisions and, and move early. Thank you, Dick, for sharing those insights on the importance of disaster preparedness. Dick showed me a movie that was developed at the Nelson County Historical Society that broke down the physical processes of the Hurricane Camille catastrophe. You might be wondering how in the world a location could get up to 30 inches of rain, mostly in three to five hours. It just sounds absolutely impossible. This movie, produced with guidance from University of Maryland Associate Professor Jeffrey Halverson, explained that the massive rise in elevation along the crest of the Blue Ridge Mountains, often called a wall or rampart, played a crucial role for enhancing the constant stream of low-level moisture associated with Hurricane Camille. Remember that rising air enhances condensation and precipitation, so we should not be surprised that Camille's maximum rainfall occurred just to the east of the Blue Ridge Crest, where moisture-laden air from the east and southeast was forced to rapidly rise. In short, we would not expect this much rain to physically be possible along the coastal plain in this region of the country, like, for example, in the tidewater of southeastern Virginia. But even with the sudden rise of elevation in the Blue Ridge Mountains, the amount of range was still exceptionally rare. 
Our podcast continues with insights from a storm survivor named Bar Delk. He was 22 years old when Camille struck and was driving back to Nelson County from Charlottesville in torrential rain on August 19, 1969. This next part of the podcast is an open conversation with both Bar Delk and Dick Whitehead in the Oakland Museum in Nelson County, Virginia. Long were people cut off? I mean, you're talking about roads and bridges washed out and just tons of debris, massive boulders and houses and roadways. I mean, how long were people cut off after the storm? On the 19th of August, what, they opened U.S. 29 for Labor Day weekend. Was that the first time this road that you on was open? It was closed at both ends. You know, there were... People found out within the next day or so were using back roads and stuff how they could get in. But major roads were closed, you know. And far more tragic, I think you guys were saying the last body wasn't even found for like months after the storm, right? I mean, it was a long time. But most of them were found in in about three-week period that we searched for bodies. We had helicopters in here. We, We had... Basically, every stream of any size in Nelson County had at least two searches down each side during that period of time. They mapped it out. They they made sure that search crews went down, you know, few days separation between the first search and the next search. But they searched and and so forth. And then some bodies were found in debris piles. There were some tremendous debris piles. 20, 30 feet high of piles of trees and and so forth that floated down. And uh, so that was, we were, we searched for about three weeks and then ended the search. And I said, I don't think but one body was found after that. And that was found by highway construction crews that would unearth the body. Y'all mentioned as well, there were some bodies found that people had no idea who they were. They weren't from Nelson County. And then in other cases, Nelson, Nelson County people were missing and never found, right? With the 30, how many? The 30, 36, or eight were, 36 or 8 people were never found. We have a list of them over here, but I just can't remember that number. And the number of people that were um, found that were never identified, other than the doctors that did the autopsy, said that they were not from Nelson County. That number of people is eight people, and we're pretty sure they washed off a of 29, possibly at Woods Mill, where he was talking about. But they were found down along the Rockfish River, all except one of them was found in the James. Um, uh, so anyway, there's a, there's a, there, uh, but the searches were intensive, and it were we were assisted. Uh, by all kinds of, of uh, local rescue squads in the surrounding counties. We, they, the people from Nelson did a lot of the searching, and then we were assisted by state agencies and federal agencies, and um, the state and the feds produced a lot of help and resources to us, but it took a little while for all that to get in place. Uh, we had helicopters in here on day one by midday early afternoon um and that was perchance because um there was a a a bit of radio communication that got out uh all the power was down in the county and the roads were kind of closed off and you could only get in little small tidbits and arteries in different places but (coughs) eventually um 
that message that a, a message that got out during the night led other surrounding counties to know that we needed help here in this area and a helicopter was uh, sent over here and so we had two one or two or three helicopters in here on day one but um, then they started to increase and they were supplied by uh, Quantico and Fort Belvoir and then uh, as as time went on the um, the, the helicopter numbers got pretty heavy. We probably had sometimes um, 20, 20? 16 or 17, I think, were the most helicopters we had. They, most of these were Huey helicopters and then a, a couple of Chinooks and stuff. The first day, AT&T uh, Communications sent a helicopter down here. One of their contractors down here because they lost the communication through here. We interviewed the pilot to that for a program a few years ago, but he's already got commandeered once he got here. And then we, then once Bel Fort Belvoir starts in the hell of uh, the, the Hueys down here, and they were the workhorse of it and stuff. These were, all those pilots were basically Vietnam returnee pilots. And we interviewed one of those uh, in, at the 50th thing. He described it as uh, in the, uh, when he was here in the lecture that when he flew in the first time, he thought of carpet bombing. That That's what he said, you know, it was like Vietnam and having flying over carpet bombing. The destruction was that extensive. The destruction that destruction was, was like a carpet bombing. I want to ask you all, too, you have a map in the museum here that shows the thousands of landslides, some small, some large. So what happened in those landslide zones? Were they eventually, was debris removed and did people ever rebuild in those zones? Or did it did this change how people build and, and locate in Nelson County? The county did do, uh, came in and, and the flood zone maps changed considerably. Well, they didn't have any flood zone maps. But they didn't have any before then, right? And, uh, you know, the, uh, you go back now and you can hardly see these things for the trees, the canopy of the trees growing back over. But most of the places that were washed into Bell Rock are still Bell Rock. But then they came in in the lowlands and uh, and did a lot of rehabilitation on that and, and spread soil and so forth. Back. To this day, can we see some escarpment, some cuts where that's from Camille and it maybe it, it hasn't been covered over or you could actually see evidence of the Absolutely. rock slides? Absolutely. I can take you to hundreds of places in Nelson County where it's still bare rock. It, 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 when, the, when the landslides came away from the mountain, it, it slid off onto the rock and there's no soil left, so you have no vegetation yet, even today. And there's, and I think, uh, I, I say I can take you to hundreds. I would be willing to tell you that there's got to be thousands of them, um, small, some places, and then there are a few little trees around here and there. But then down in the valleys where this debris had piled up, um, this. Uh, the county officials and state officials from Virginia had to go to the Fed level to get um, approval for rocks to be considered debris. 
because trees and stuff like that and houses were debris, but they had to go and get the federal uh, government to accept the fact that rocks were debris. And then once that was done, um, the contractors were hired and came in here and they restored uh, the streams back to a single channel because when, when after the flooding, it was just a braided system where the river ran all over the valley everywhere. And the idea is if, if you're gonna make, help the county recover, you need to let the farmers go back to work because this was an agricultural area. So they, they put the, the fields back where they could you know, grow hay and crops and whatever. And the bulldozers came in, the contractors came in. So all the, um, the field areas were restored the rocks were piled up over against the stream or against the road embankments to kind of stabilize them. And the debris was e either uh, buried or piled up and burned. And then all the sediment was spread back out in the field so the people could go back to utilizing their land, which was their livelihood. And that all happened in a period of about two to three years after the flood. It took that long for all that to happen. But up in the wooded areas outside of the, you know, agricultural areas, I can take you to plenty of places where bare rock is there or, and or uh, big boulders and debris are just strewn everywhere. And, and that has, is still like it was right after the flood, except there's vegetation on some of it. Were there any of those areas where there was debris, boulders, things like that, where people said, okay, in this zone, we can never build again? Or did it change any of like building, zoning, anything like that? Or was it just kind of common sense? Like, okay, if there's a bunch of boulders there, someone's maybe not going to put a house there. Well, in the, in the forest areas, on steep slopes, there weren't any houses up there to start with. But in the flatter areas, um, there um, flood maps didn't exist, but flood maps were established largely all over the country, in part due to Camille. And so that changed, um, uh, at, that resulted in um, uh, uh, zoning ordinances being passed both uh, on a, for flood insurance, but also at a local level for just building permits. So in these flatter areas, such as the town of Masses Mill, there, uh, there were a couple of trailers put in there before that zoning ordinance was passed, but after that zoning ordinance was passed, the town of Masses Mill, which had um, hundreds of houses, has today only three or four that survived the flood and, and two, a couple of trailers. So, yes, there's, there are areas where people do not build back today um, as a result of that. I'll tell you one thing that surprised me, Davis Creek and then up Little Piney and stuff like that, I am shocked. Now, the houses themselves aren't in the path, but I am shocked going up these little mountain hollows and stuff, how many people have moved into those areas now. They might not be living in the path of it, but if this happens again, they're going to be just as cut off as the people were cut off back then. You know, because, huh? I mean, Davis Creek, I, I made my first trip into Davis Creek in 2019, which was 50 years after the flood, and we were doing a book here 
my wife and Dick and, and another person in the society were editing, and I went up in Davis Creek, and the last time I'd been in Davis Creek, we'd been on a Huey helicopter. And I go into Davis Creek, and I couldn't recognize anything, but I came back and told my wife, I said, more people live in Davis Creek than live in Lovingston now. It was mailbox after mailbox after mailbox of people building these homes and the vacation places and little places in the mountains that the roads, if this happens again, they will be just as cut off and no electricity and no way to get out as they were in 1969. That's a good point. Even if your house survives, if your road's cut off, you're cut off from the world. So they're not building in the floodplain. The zoning ordinance won't allow that. But they might be building in a landslide-prone area, and that they're not possibly aware of. So they could be vulnerable to landslides, and they're certainly going to be vulnerable to being cut off from the outside community other than their cell phone. Well, that's a good point. We hear about floodplain mapping all over the U.S. I don't think there is anything like landslide mapping, right? No, sir. There is no such thing as landslide mapping, and there's no such thing as landslide insurance. Interesting. So you're putting yourself there on a mountainside, maybe not far from a hollow that was destroyed in Camille, uh, putting yourself in a vulnerable place. Like Barb was saying, your transportation can be cut off. But but you're saying if a landslide hits that area, there's no uh, there's they don't really assess that in the same way of doing floodplain mapping. And like you said, there's no landslide insurance. Unlike a lot of places you see these landslides on the West Coast, uh, what we have here is hard granite rock with two to three feet of dirt on it and a root mat and all what happened then is that root mat that dirt got soaking wet turned liquefied and no longer held those trees on the side of the mountain and the trees and every bit of the dirt right down to the clean rock came off it just all slid all the dirt all the soil all the organic stuff and everything came down and just left the flat rock there Wow. Um, I wanted to ask you all one last question. What do you think is the biggest lesson learned from the Camille catastrophe? <sighs> that, that's hard to say. Uh, Should we start with Dick and we'll come back to you? Uh, I'll start with come back. I'm also a loss of words. It's, hard. It's, just, it's overwhelming, actually. It, I've never quite covered anything like this, that it's just so overwhelming. You know, it's... it's it, it, I, I asked... I asked the uh, weather fellow, hey, uh, what's his name that came here? Jeff Haverson. I said, this, to me, I've been saying and been heard this was a world record rainfall. Is that true? And he said, well, it's, it's hard to say. He said, you had 32 inches of rain in six hours, but someone else might have had 24 inches in three hours or 40 some inches in. 24 hours. He it says, was so localized. Had, had, you know, what quantifies it, you know, that it, but I, and no one had experienced anything like this, you know, that we know of before. It, it, thousands of years of erosion happened in a matter of a few hours, you know, here. And, and, and the other thing uh, that, that I think you've heard, we had almost no people injured. There were, you know, a half a dozen or so people maybe who were actually injured, they were either dead or, or, or okay. You know, it either got their house or it didn't get their house, you know. It was it was not like these places that that 
have floods and you know you have most natural catastrophes i think i heard one time it was normally about 20 injuries to each death the the thing i'm proud of about and have always been proud about is the decision was made very quickly here that local people were going to be in charge that you know they weren't going the national guard all sorts of different outfits wanted to come at red cross everybody wanted to come in here and be you know take over and so but a, a, a group of local people, you know, organized themselves and got going the first 48 hours or so before anyone got in here. The state and federal government came in and gave a tremendous amount of support, but even them, after it was all over, said you couldn't have put a better group of people here. His father and different ones were here. His father was a sheriff of the county at the time, and they got in and, you know, pick this guy and this guy to do this and someone else volunteered to do this. And it was a local-led recovery. You know, locals didn't do it all, but the local people did it. And so much better than, than we see Hurricane Katrina and stuff where everyone sat there and raised their hand, please come help us. You know, nobody's doing anything for us and, and everything like that. Just about the entire county here, you know, everyone pitched in and, and 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 was in there doing it, doing their job. You know, they could go to work. They they were there doing it until what, what time they could get out of the county. It sounds like there was a strong community to start with, and then people were very proactive to come and help themselves and help their neighbors. Everyone everyone got in. Most of the search parties for for days, you know, were local. I was taking search parties every every day that. It's, it's hard to believe there were 15- and 16-year-old boys, and they were going to recovering bodies and digging them out of the sand or taking them out of debris piles and having to drag the body out and put it on a rock in the middle of the stream so that the next time a helicopter came by, they could, they could see it. And uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was real heartening to, you know, to see people come together and do that. Dick, any last words to share perspectives for our audience? Only that um, when uh, we we don't want to take all the credit for doing all the work. Um, there were local people that led the search parties. The local people knew where to go, who lived where, and how to find these different communities. These helicopter pilots had no they they'd say. You need to go search Davis Creek. Well, the helicopter guy, he didn't even know where Davis Creek was. Local people led the search parties, and, and then the, the outside help, including the helicopter pilots and the, and the other assisting people doing searching, um, they're the ones that, um, that came along and assisted. So we got lots of assistance. But then when the body was found, we had a local preacher, um, who would go and recover the body for the most part, and they would bring them back here to a morgue in, in the county seat, Lovingston, and then our local doctors uh, and dentists would do the ID on the bodies. So it was a local effort with a lot of state and federal support. It sounds like there was a lot of local leadership and local knowledge of these different um streams and hollows and and areas to go but then y'all needed assistance and resources from the outside but it sounds like they deferred to the locals to help kind of lead a lot of that effort correct they we 
that's exactly what happened. Thank you so much to our three guests on this podcast, as well as Nelson County Historical Society. So at the end of most podcasts, I share my perspective on two or three take-home points. This podcast on Hurricane Camille's impacts in Virginia is so profound, I actually have eight points to share. So let's jump right into it. Number one, when hurricanes threaten the U.S., we place a lot of focus on the wind and flood risk at coastal areas. This podcast reminds us not to forget about inland flooding far from saltwater, especially in mountainous areas near the Appalachian Mountains. So while these types of floods are exceptional and very rare, they're not unprecedented, and there are numerous examples in weather history. For example, uh, think of Hurricane Agnes in 1972. So although Agnes made landfall along Florida's Gulf Coast in the Panhandle, when many people think back to Agnes, they remember one of the worst floods on record to strike central Pennsylvania. So very much like Camille three years earlier, the remnants of a Gulf Coast hurricane tracked north and caused extensive damage and death and destruction in portions of the Appalachian Mountains. So don't forget about that inland and mountain impact, even of Gulf Coast hurricanes. Point number two, landslides can have an enormous impact in mountainous areas. So this may seem obvious, but the fact still blindsides us. And it even took me by surprise several times during this podcast. You could hear once or twice during my conversation with Dick that he corrected me that we're not just talking about rivering flooding when we look back at Hurricane Camille, but also the impacts of thousands of landslides. So this dialogue also blindsided disaster professionals way back in the late 1960s. As Dick said, following Camille, federal regulations that define the nature of storm debris had to be expanded to include rocks. So this might sound unbelievably obvious, but at the time, a landslide of this magnitude had never been experienced. And so the scope of this disaster was really outside the boundaries of what qualified for federal disaster assistance way back there in the late 1960s. Dick also reminded us that uh, we may still have a long way to go with this topic. So as he said, landslide, landslide risk maps do not exist today in the same way as floodplain maps exist. And also landslide insurance is not available near mountains uh, for residents that are at risk. So just something to think about if you live near a steep mountain slope, you want to think about what we call debris flows. These are landslides, mudslides, anything that's moving that material downslope. Point number three, know the potential natural disasters that could impact your community. This may sound painfully obvious. You might be listening to this podcast from Miami and you say, I get it. We're vulnerable to hurricanes. Or you're listening from San Francisco and you say, I get it. We're vulnerable to earthquakes. This is very obvious. But looking back at Camille, keep in mind, it was the landslides that inflicted a lot of destruction in many places and people were really unprepared for this. So even if you know you're vulnerable to something like hurricane flooding, think through the specific details of physically what could happen. It may be more than just flood water impacting your place. It may be things like landslides and debris flows coming down mountains. Maybe you live along the Gulf Coast and flooding really is your biggest risk. Keep in mind, flooding can come from salt water with storm surge or it can come from heavy rain that pools. And in some cases, there's not much of a storm surge, but there's still a lot of flooding. Imagine if you could get in a time machine and go back five years and walk down the streets of different communities in the state of Texas 
and you have sheets of paper and you ask people to make a, a list of the five most likely natural hazards to impact them. If you were in coastal Texas, probably a lot of people would say flooding and hurricanes. If you were inland, you'd hear a lot of people talk about severe weather, tornadoes, hail, thunderstorms, maybe even drought and wildfire. What you probably would have heard nobody talk about were Arctic outbreaks and severe cold weather uh, impacts. Probably nobody would have listed that. However, keep in mind, in February 2021, the Great Texas Freeze collapsed the power grid inflicted hundreds of fatalities and cost $195 billion in losses, making it the most expensive disaster in Texas history. This type of Arctic outbreak would not have been on anyone's list of the the most severe or threatening natural disasters. So keep in mind, natural disasters can blindside us. It's often the things that we're not thinking about that cause the biggest damage and the biggest loss of life, unfortunately. Okay, points four, five, and six I'm taking directly from a USGS open file report authored by B.A. Morgan et al. in 1999. They give three measures that they suggest that we apply from Hurricane Camille's flooding. And it's so good, I'm just going to read it verbatim. Again, this is from the USGS in their 1999 report. Looking back at Hurricane Camille, the first, this is quoted from USGS, the first measure consists of education and widespread information dissemination about the causes and dangers of floods and debris flows resulting from major rainfall. Some knowledge of the expected path of debris flows would result in better informed evacuation plans, providing citizens with some knowledge of safe areas for refuge. The second point here from USGS is it involves inaction of informed and respected zoning restrictions on land subject to debris flow and flood hazards. These restrictions could reduce loss of life and property through recognition that debris flows are triggered on steep slopes and move rapidly into existing stream channels. So really interesting there. They're talking about getting out ahead of this and possibly doing zoning and restricting where people can live. The third point here from the USGS report in 1999 talks about the need for early warning based on predicted rainfall and upstream measurement of intense rainfalls exceeding two inches per hour for more than four hours. If both evacuation plans and a warning system had been in place in Nelson County during 1969, the citizens along Davis Creek would have been advised just before midnight of August 19th to seek refuge at a nearby structure not in the path of draining steep slopes such as Oak Hill Church. Had all the citizens heard and heeded this warning, most or all of the 50 fatalities in this one area could have been avoided. So again, these are points four, five, and six on the podcast. They come from a 1999 report from USGS. They give three suggestions there of how we can apply what happened in Hurricane Camille so we can reduce losses and loss of life in the future. Action item number seven, if you want to learn more about Hurricane Camille's catastrophe in Virginia, check out this amazing book called Commemorating Camille, Never Forget. It's made available by the Nelson County Historical Society. I believe it's available online for $40. What I love about this book, Bard Delk took me around in his pickup truck. 
and site after site after site, he opened this book and he showed me before and after photos. They actually have before and after photos printed in the book where you see what the debris looked like at a given site in 1969. And then you see a picture maybe 40 or 50 years later of the same site, really as it looks today. Barr took me around so I could also see it in real time. But it's an amazing before and after. Some of those types of storytelling are the most powerful because you're going down a street, you would never think it's possible that you're going to see hundreds or thousands of boulders over houses and over the road. But there's a photograph of the same thing you're seeing today, but as it looked right after Hurricane Camille. Again, a very powerful way to tell stories, a lot of photographic evidence brought together, and and great storytelling. Amazing resource there called Commemorating Camille, Never Forget, by the Nelson County Historical Society. My final take-home point of the Camille catastrophe is the importance of giving storm survivors a voice to share their story with the world about what happened if a disaster struck their community. I could not believe the extent to which the residents of Nelson County went to put together this resource center on Camille. I mean, I was blown away. There are tons of maps an enormous archive of audio and video interviews, a lot of artifacts from the storm. I just scratched the surface on my visit there. It was amazed. I was blown away how such a small rural county could have put together so many resources to commemorate and remember the storm, the victims, and really what happened there in August of 1969. I do want to mention, though, when we talk to storm survivors, it's important to be sensitive. So I just several months ago was in Hurricane Adelia in Florida, there was a storm that was really gutted out by muddy floodwaters and the residents had just come back and they're just cleaning up all this mess. And the media just, there was a, some local reporters just pushed their way right into the house. And I was there, you know, looking at this, just thinking, wow, these people really are just in a whirlwind. Their head is probably spinning. They're trying to pick up the pieces and all of a sudden they have microphones in their face. And so I think we really need to be sensitive and uh, really let the storm survivors dictate if they even want to do an interview to start with. And if so, what they want to talk about and really let them control and dictate the nature of that interaction. I, I think we need to be very sensitive of that. Really, uh, this is their story. And some people may not feel comfortable being on camera or may not feel comfortable sharing their story. That said, I've been in many disaster zones where people said after the initial disaster, after the initial catastrophe, the media left and the whole world forgot about us. Time after time again, I've talked to storm survivors and disaster victims that said, please don't forget about us. Please keep these stories about what we're going through and and what happened here. Keep these stories uh, shared with the public so that people can know about us and not forget about us. So I think it is important to uh, really interact with storm survivors and people that have that have survived disasters for, for several reasons to document their stories. Also, lessons learned for the future. What I kept hearing in Nelson County is how will the world know what happened here if we don't tell these stories? And also, I think it really commemorates the the lives of family members and and friends and and, uh, people in their community that were lost. These are valuable people that are irreplaceable. And I think telling these stories about the value of these human lives, who these people were that were impacted by this catastrophe, I think it really in a way, memorializes them and helps us 
draw value and, and remember these people, who they were, what happened to them, and what we can learn from this disaster. Y'all, this was a heavy podcast. This was uh, I was amazed by what happened there. As several storm survivors said, the storm almost seems more amazing now than it did back at the time because we look back after many decades and nothing like this has happened in this part of the world. The, the magnitude of this flood and the landslides and the reflows, it's just hard to really grasp. I, I sort of have an idea of it after spending time in Nelson County, but again, it, it's just that the scale of this disaster was so tremendous. Y'all check out Nelson County Historical Society online. Again, uh, the, the book on uh, commemorating Camille, Never Forget, it is an amazing resource. If you're interested in disasters, if you're interested in Southwest Virginia, definitely check that out. It's an amazing read, and they've put a lot of time and effort into commemorating what happened during Hurricane Camille in 1969. Y'all, thanks for coming along on this ride. My favorite podcasts are the ones where we get out there on the ground, interview storm survivors in person, and really go to really see what happened in these places where disasters struck. We hope it's a long, long time, if ever, that anything remotely like this happens in this part of the world. But when the next flood comes into Southwest Virginia and there are landslides in the future, I think people will be better prepared because of the amazing work that the residents of Nelson County have done, not only to commemorate what happened in Camille in 1969, but to be better prepared for the future. Y'all, thanks again for listening. This is your host, Dr. Hal of the GeoTrek Podcast, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek Podcast.